is Stacey Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. Three Republican lawmakers are proposing a tax exemption for retirement income. The Capitol Times is reporting that the proposal is an amendment to the state budget and would exempt the first $100,000 of retirement income for Wisconsinites age 67 or older. Currently, the law offers retirement income exemptions up to $5,000 for individuals who earn less than $15,000 per year. An analysis by the nonpartisan Legislative Fiscal Bureau notes that the proposal would decrease taxes for more than 200,000 Wisconsin residents by an average of $1,700. One of the legislators proposing the amendment, Republican John Mako of Ledgeview, says this is the first step in the tax reform package that will be introduced in the new legislative session. Republican lawmakers are also looking to add a constitutional amendment that could be put in front of voters in April. According to the Wisconsin State Journal, the amendment would grant the legislature final say over how the governor spends federal funds. The governor currently has sole discretion. Republicans have sought more control over how the office doles out finances due in part to Governor Tony Evers' use of stimulus dollars distributed to the state to help with the COVID-19 pandemic. Legislative Republicans have increasingly turned to constitutional amendments as a means of bypassing the Democratic governor. The governor cannot veto a constitutional amendment. The amendment is a part of a joint resolution that has been passed by the legislature last session. It is planned to go for its second consideration in the current session. If it passes again, it will go to the April 4th ballot. The second half of that joint resolution is a constitutional amendment that that seeks to make it harder for criminal defendants to get out on bail. AP News has published that the proposal gained momentum last year after Darrell Brooks Jr. posted bail two days before he drove his SUV through a Christmas parade in Waukesha. Bail is set as a means to ensure that the person returns to court, but the amendment will require that court officials also consider a defendant's risk to public safety. Senator Van Wangard, a sponsor of the measure, plans a hearing on Tuesday, hoping to get it passed to make it on the April 4th ballot. The officer charged with shooting Quadrant Wilson during a traffic stop last February has had his request to dismiss the case denied today. The Wisconsin State Journal reports Mark Wagner, an officer with the Department of Criminal Investigations, is charged with second-degree reckless endangerment, a felony charge. In a courtroom filled with DCI colleagues wearing Stand With Wags t-shirts, a Dane County judge found that there is enough evidence for a trial to take place. Wagner shot Wilson after the plainclothed agent helped to pin Wilson's car in an intersection on the east side. Wilson later pled guilty to selling fentanyl to a man who later overdosed from the drugs. Now, today's hearing was not to rule on whether Wagner is guilty of the charges, but only to decide if a trial would take place. And now on to today's top stories. 
In 2019, the Air National Guard released their environmental impact statement showing how they believe the incoming F-35 jets would affect the Madison community. But a group of anti-F-35 activists say that the impact statement was not accurate and last month issued their final legal documents in a lawsuit that they hope can stop the jets from coming to Madison. WRT producer Nate Wikihout has more. Anti-F-35 activists have filed their final legal documents to try and keep the jets out of Dane County before they touch down at Truex Airfield later this year. The Air National Guard selected Madison as a proposed home for the F-35 years ago, along with several other cities. After releasing a draft environmental impact statement and later a final impact statement with modest changes, Madison was formally selected to receive the jets in 2020. Safe Skies Clean Water Wisconsin is a nonprofit coalition of activists who have been fighting the arrival of the Jets in Madison for years. They maintain that Madison was always the number one pick for the Jets and that the 2019 draft impact statement was done as a formality and was not used to help the Air Force decide where to place the Jets. Since Madison was chosen as the definitive home of the Jets in 2020, Safe Skies have attempted to block their arrival using a handful of methods, including an appeal filed last year to the Environmental Protection Agency and other litigations that predates it. In December of 2020, the anti-F-35 activists filed a lawsuit against the National Guard, claiming that they had violated federal environmental law by failing to study and disclose how the Jets would affect the community. That lawsuit was dismissed by a federal judge last January after the judge ruled that they did not provide enough evidence that the Guard failed to properly look at the environmental impacts. In a last-ditch effort, the group once again filed a federal lawsuit, this time against the Air Force, in March of 2021, again saying that the 2019 impact statement was inadequate. That case is coming to a close as last month Safe Skies filed some of their final legal documents in the lawsuit. Kathleen Henry is the founder of Dairyland Public Interest Law and is representing Safe Skies. This was a motion for summary judgment where we're asking the District Court of the District of Columbia to find that the record shows that the Air Force did not take a hard look at all the factors it was required to. She says that the impact statement is inadequate for a slew of reasons. The most significant are that the Air Force did not take a hard look at the impacts of noise on the community. It didn't take a hard look at the impacts of environmental justice. And the Air Force chose the two sites, Madison and Alabama, that would have the most severe impacts on low-income and minority communities. The Air Force's environmental impact statement says that at 1,000 feet above ground level, the jets will have a noise level of around 119 decibels on takeoff, louder than a garbage disposal and a nightclub. Studies have shown that prolonged exposure to loud noises, such as those from the F-35s, may cause developmental issues in children, including poor reading comprehension, long-term memory issues, and increased stress. The brief filed last month recognizes that most lawsuits filed against the military end up favoring the military. But the brief points to a recent lawsuit filed by a small town in Washington state called Whidbey Island. There, the U.S. Navy planned to station jets in the community. In that case, a federal judge ruled against the Navy last year, saying that they had not conducted an adequate environmental study, specifically pointing to a failure by the Navy to show the noise impacts the jets would have on classroom learning. 
In that case, the environmental impact statement was thrown out, and Stephen Klafka with Safe Sky says that he hopes to see that happen in Madison as well. Our biggest goal would be to stop construction and stop the F-35 jets from coming here. And also, if the EIS is prepared properly and, and, and explains the impacts that are going to have on Madison residents, that the Air Force may you know, decide not to bring the jets here. The Air Force will have until January 16th to respond to Safe Skies' final brief, and Safe Skies will have until mid-February to respond. The court will have all of the documents needed to decide the case mid-March. The U.S. Air Force and the Air National Guard declined to comment as litigation is still ongoing. Meanwhile, the jets are set to land at Truex Airfield in early May, and Kathleen Henry says that she isn't optimistic that a decision will be made before the jets touch down. We had our complaint filed with her over a year ago, and we asked to supplement the record, and she took a year to rule on our motion to supplement the record, and I don't think there's any way she'll rule before May. Henry says that even if the case is decided after the Jets touch down, she says that the Jets can still be removed if the judge rules in their favor. Construction has already begun on the new installation, including the addition of a jet simulator facility, which broke ground in August 2021, and a medical readiness building, which broke ground last month. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. If you ever wanted to use Madison's downtown public skate park during the winter, now you can. And that's thanks to the persistence of a few dogged and concerned skateboarders who managed to change the position of the local parks division. WORT reporter Erin Ashley has the story. As cold and snowy as it can get in Madison over the winter, the occasional unseasonably warm and sunny day entices Madison residents with outdoor activities. The same holds true for skateboarding enthusiasts across the city. But while you may be able to go for a walk or play a sport when the snow melts, until recently, no one could use Madison's only downtown public skate park during the winter months. And even during warmer months, accessing the skate park could be spotty at best. I showed up and it was the first day of skate camp and there's all these kids, you know, they're ranging in ages from like, you know, 7 to 13 or 14, whatever. And they're just standing out there and they're locked out. And, you know, at this point, someone had explained to me, oh, yeah, you've got to call the park rangers sometimes. And sometimes they can get here, sometimes they can't. That's Scott Mitchell May, a Madison resident, author, and skateboarder. Scott told me that he recently got back into skateboarding after a long hiatus and began using the Irwin and Robert Goodman Skate Park located at McPike Park in downtown Madison. The city of Madison's parks division used to keep the park locked between the hours of 10 at night and 8 in the morning, as well as during the colder months. But it wouldn't always be open when it was supposed to be. That moment with the skate camp group upset Scott and his friends, who were disheartened at the idea that a poor experience like that might be the only introduction to skateboarding for some kids. Scott and his friends say that they recognize that the park rangers are often busy and couldn't always open the park on time. Eventually, Scott began to wonder why the park was even locked in the first place. Uh, They would come out and they would open the park. But at the same time, you know, they weren't, when I first started raising this issue, uh, you know, in early, no, or really raising the the issue 
uh, for them. At first it was, okay, well, we'll just be better about unlocking it. I'm really sorry. And, and I would tell them, like, look, you have parks employees. They're, they're busy people. I understand they can't get out here all the time. I'm no longer asking about making sure the policy is, you know, is followed to the team. I'm now more interested in asking about why the policy exists at all. Scott says this went on for over a month. And once I started, you know, talking to the people at the, in the mayor's office about that specific point of like, hey, if you can point to another park that you do this for, or you can point to why we're so different than, you know, Wanakee Skate Park or Sun Prairie Skate Park or Beloit Skate Park or Sturgeon Bay's uh, Skate Park or literally pretty much any other skate park I've been to that remains unlocked during unoperational hours, then heck, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll listen to you. And once I made sort of those points, it was very quickly that like the next day I got the email that was like, hey, we've, we've circled back with the risk manager's office and we have figured out that the skate park can remain unlocked. Ann Shea from the Parks Division independently confirmed that the decision to remove the lock during the winter and at night was made to improve the operational efficiency of the department and to promote inclusivity and public access at the park. The park is now open and Scott says that he can see the difference in the community. I was there, um, like I said, I was there last, uh, last Sunday and this Monday, and both times I ran into people skating, and like I said, dads with kids, moms with kids, people out enjoying the park. The, the feedback I've heard when I've been there and, and from, and from the, the, the skaters I know in the community has been overwhelmingly positive on this. Although the park will no longer be locked at night and will be open throughout the year, those using the park after official closing time will still be subject to trespassing fines, just like any other park. Scott says that the push to open the downtown skate park was a group effort and couldn't have been accomplished without the support of the Madison Skate Park Foundation, Jeff at Freedom Skate Shop, as well as the rangers and clerks from the Parks Division and the Mayor's Office. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Aaron Ashley. Here in Madison, if you're having a mental health emergency, community resources like CARES are available to help you through your crisis. But in rural Wisconsin, a mental health emergency could mean a several-hour-long car ride in the back of a police cruiser. Aaron McGordy is a reporting intern with Wisconsin Watch, whose newest story delves into the many pitfalls in the state's emergency mental health system. McGordy spoke with WORT producer Nate Wiggyhout earlier today about what she found. So what is the current situation for people experiencing a mental health emergency in rural Wisconsin? If someone is having a crisis, where do they go? Well, oftentimes there aren't any mental health resources in rural areas of the state, which means that if someone is in crisis, law enforcement is typically um, the first call and the only people who are able to respond. Um, this presents a lot of issues, especially because law enforcement often aren't trained in how to de-escalate mental health crisis. They, um, you know, aren't, aren't able to properly approach the situation for lack of training. And um, that can present a lot of issues for the people in crisis. And as we've heard from law enforcement across the state, it also presents a lot of issues for small communities where maybe only two officers are on shift and, and now one of them has to take a patient across the state. And, and that leaves the community with um, less folks in public safety. So it, it kind of hurts, 
hurts all parties involved. Now, you took a look at other rural Midwest states and how they differ in how they deliver emergency mental health services. What what did you find there? So a lot of surrounding states have um, created a regional approach to funding uh, mental health services, which means that the state is broken up into different areas and smaller rural counties are able to pool their funds um, to create resources that are, are closer and more accessible. Um, so Minnesota, for example, has a regional model where a lot of rural counties are able to team up and create um, more accessible care in the form of um, crisis centers that are closer, um, assisting with inpatient care that um, maybe is shorter term. Um, Another aspect of Winnebago is that it typically involves longer holds. So Chrissy, for example, was held there for 90 days. Um, and one of my sources that I spoke to, um, Tony Thrasher, who's a psychiatrist and the head of crisis, um, crisis services for Milwaukee County, noted that a lot of folks in crisis um, are able to stabilize within, you know, 48 to 72 hours and maybe don't require that long of hold. So if they had resources that were closer and more accessible, that would you know, better serve them than something far away from their own support systems and um, far away from their communities, from their family and friends, and and also, you know, ultimately not not the type of services that they may need. And now, so all of this sort of comes down to state politics, and Governor Tony Evers has tried to address this problem in the past. Can you can you sort of tell me about the politics of all of this? The attorney general held a a task force in 2019 to discuss the issue and it, you know, he gathered mental health experts, um, advocates, law enforcement to all kind of pool their ideas of how Wisconsin can fix the system because all parties involved, including the law enforcement that are responding to these crisis calls, agree that it's not working and it's, it's not serving communities in need. It's not serving patients. Um, And so based on those recommendations from that task force, Governor Evers proposed to um, create regional crisis centers. So this funding would do pretty much exactly what the task force had suggested, which is create um, receiving centers and inpatient care facilities that would serve these rural areas of the state Um, and provide what they refer to as kind of a continuum of care. So that's maybe, you know, more more access than they currently have, obviously, but it it would be less involved than perhaps a 90-day hold at a mental health institute or a hospital. So that funding was proposed in his last budget proposal, um, and the, the funding was taken out of the final budget by members of the legislature, members of the Joint Finance Committee. And so what happens now? What are mental health advocates asking for and what do they want to see here in Wisconsin? So they're they're asking for a regional model. You know, they're asking for um, these centers to be accessible for folks who don't live in urban centers. Madison here, like you mentioned, has the CARES team that can respond to folks in crisis. It also has a 20-bed inpatient psychiatric ward at UW Hospital. 
Milwaukee has similar resources, but towns like Superior, where Chrissy is from, and and so many others don't have anything. And so advocates are are asking for, you know, facilities exactly like Evers had proposed funding for. Ultimately, that supplemental funding that the Joint, Joint Finance Committee has set aside is still sitting there. It doesn't lapse back into the general fund until the beginning of the next budget cycle. The Department of Health um, will essentially need to meet with the Joint Finance Committee to discuss how the department would use the funds to create these centers. The last development was earlier this month. The Joint Finance Committee issued a memo to the department essentially requiring additional information. They had stated that the information the department provided to them didn't adequately explain or justify how the funds would be used to create these resources. So the the ultimate meeting between the Joint Finance Committee and the Department of Health hasn't been held yet because the, the Finance Committee is asking the Department of Health to provide more information. Well, Erin, do you have just any final thoughts that you'd like to share with us about your story here? You know, it was it was one of those stories that's important to tell, but also heartbreaking. Um, because you're hearing from sources like Chrissy who, you know, didn't didn't get the help that they needed and are now working on behalf of others to make sure that folks can get that help. So it was it was hard to write at times, but I think something that deserves continual attention, especially because that funding is still in play. I've been talking with Erin McGrorty, investigative reporting intern with Wisconsin Watch, about her latest story on emergency mental health systems here in Wisconsin. You can read her full story over at wisconsinwatch.org. Erin, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me. Thanks so much, Nate. Time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with fellow host Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. From election investigation to major court decisions, 2022 was a big year for transparency in Wisconsin government. This week on Transparency Talk, WORT contributor Jonah Chester and Tom Kamenick, president of the Wisconsin Transparency Project, discuss how some of those moments could impact government transparency in 2023 and beyond. And now a quick note that this conversation isn't specific legal advice, so seek an attorney's assistance if you have difficulty with open records or open government. All right. It is every other Thursday, which means I'm joined on the other end of the line, as is tradition by Tom Kamenick, founder and president of the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, how you holding up? New Year's been great so far. Last four days of it. I totally agree, Tom. New year, new me. Uh, but, you know, today I wanted to look back because a lot happened in uh, the Wisconsin government transparency scene in 2022. And I sort of wanted to recap some notable things that happened, some notable court decisions, stuff in, you know, state politics, uh, stuff that might impact us as we head into 2023. So, Tom, what stood out to you from 2022? What were the big Wisconsin transparency headlines? 
just to talk more general transparency in Wisconsin, there are kind of two really big things that that really kind of shook the shook the field here. One is this Gableman Voss saga that went on and, and frankly is still going on. Uh, remember, this is a former Supreme Court Justice Michael Gableman headed up the Office of Special Counsel on behalf of the State Assembly to look into that uh, that election and. Uh, they received lots of record requests, and they did a very poor job of responding to them. They were sued multiple times for them. They lost every single one of those cases. Some of the judges issued punitive damages and sanctions against uh, the defendants. Some of those are still being appealed, but they are—they really rock the world. Yeah, so that's dropped out of the headlines, but that is still, like you mentioned, there are still some appeals going on. So I guess everybody keep your eyes peeled for that going into, keep your eyes appealed for that going into 2023. Yeah, and then the Wisconsin Supreme Court decided to upend four decades of how recovering attorney fees in uh, records lawsuits works, which threw me into quite the spin because this is my entire business model is is getting uh, contingent awards where the defendants pay my attorney fees instead of my clients doing so. Uh, under the old rule uh, that, that lasted for, like I said, almost 40 years, if you sued the record custodian and then they, quote, voluntarily turned over records afterwards, you would still get your fees usually as long as you could show that the lawsuit caused the release. In other words, it's not like they mailed it to you and in the two days it took to get to you, you filed the lawsuit so you would have gotten it anyway. But now the new rule from the Supreme Court is that if there's voluntary production and the circuit court doesn't issue a ruling on uh, on the legality of their denial or their delay, you don't get your fees. So this has caused a problem because it allows custodians to just game the system and violate the law with little to no consequences. So that is definitely something that will impact, uh, you know, particularly legal battles over government transparency, not just in 2023, but really, you know, beyond unless there's some sort of change to that. Speaking of attorneys who work in government transparency, Tom, give us your rundown for 2022. You know, the Wisconsin Transparency Project was busy throughout the year. So what did your year shape up like? Yeah, we got a lot done. We uh, wrote 19 letters. These are typically, hey, you're not turning over records, turn them over now, or you're trying to charge too much, or you denied these records and you shouldn't have. Those are are often successful. Filed five new lawsuits. It was down a little bit because, uh, like I said, the Supreme Court made that ruling and made it very hard to bring new lawsuits currently. We're kind of working on that. Had a Five big wins in court in 2022. One was in the town of Wooster, where we got great rulings saying that they can't charge 50 cents a page and that they have to turn over some uh, applications for jobs and that they actually have to do a good search when they're told they need to look for records. We also had the big Wisconsin Manufacturers and Commerce case before the Supreme Court, and uh, we represented the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel there trying to get some records, some very basic records from uh, DHS, the state DHS, about uh, COVID outbreaks at businesses, which is information that is released in many states and even in some counties in the state. And Wisconsin Manufacturers and Commerce tried to sue and say, hey, you're going to release the names of our members. We don't want that to happen. And we fought that and successfully got the Supreme Court to rule that record subjects like WMC, they can't file that kind of lawsuit. It's not provided for. They're just not allowed to do it. And finally, I actually had three victories for the same client, Mark Gearl, out of Mequon for a, a set of email addresses. So we, there were two lawsuits. We got two rulings from the circuit court and one from the court of appeals saying, hey, if a school district uses an email distribution list to send out mass messages 
to kind of everybody that they want to talk to, not not sending out notices to parents about signing up for school or hot lunch or bus schedules, not that kind of thing. But if they're sending out these broader messages to the community at large, the public has the same right to access those email addresses as the district does. So that's a 5-0 victory to, to loss ratio. That's right. We had zero losses in 2022. A winning streak if I've ever heard one. The New Year's is a time for reflection on the year past, but it's also time for uh, reflection and pondering about the year ahead. What are we looking for for more transparency in 2023? And uh, I know this list is partially inspired by a list published by Krista Westerberg over with the Wisconsin Freedom of Information Council. Uh, Tom, tell me about what the uh, folks at the Freedom of Information Council want to see in 2023. What's, what's their transparency wish list? Hey, Krista is one of uh, the small handful of other lawyers that regularly do this plaintiff side records work, and she's been doing it even longer than I have. I, I love the work she does. She starts out right with that, uh, Supreme, that awful Supreme Court decision and says, number one, the legislature has got to fix this problem so that we have attorneys fees awarded as a regular basis in records cases when they break the law. That's not that hard. If they break the law and you sue them to get them to obey the law, they should pay your fees. Second thing is delays have been getting a lot worse, especially at state agencies. And she looks at that and thinks that there should be more funding for those agencies specifically dedicated to help clearing the backlogs. I wouldn't say no to that, but also I think part of the problem is not that they don't have enough money or enough resources, but they're just choosing to allocate it in ways that don't make transparency a priority. Department of Justice is a huge agency with thousands of employees, but they only have a couple of people doing record requests. So it takes a very long time to get those done. Uh, she also points out that 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 is a problem, too, at the local level. And she hopes that the local governments do a better job, job of reducing delays and reducing the fees that they charge to people, making it difficult to get the records and find out what your government is doing. So that's big picture, Tom. Tell me about what you're doing. What's the Wisconsin Transparency Project doing in 2023? Be on the lookout fairly soon for a lawsuit against a major school district that has been delaying records for a very long time, pushing a year right about now. We've got multiple projects ongoing about police transparency and school transparency. I've seen a rash of places, especially small towns, trying to charge 50 cents per page for photocopies. And remember, we won that case uh, last year. So if people think they can get away with it, they can't. We're going to find them. We're going to stop that, too. And there's still some out, outstanding cases we're waiting for rulings from. One of the big ones is the Wisconsin State Journal case where we sued to get uh, records about former Representative Sausch Krasinski's sexual harassment of a female staffer. That is, that is some interesting stuff to keep your eye on for the future. And I'll look forward to doing future Transparency Talk episodes about those in 2023. But... We've come up against our time for today's episode. I've been joined on the other end of the line, as always, by Tom Kamenek, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, as always, thanks for taking time out of your day to chat with me. It's my pleasure, Jonah. And remember, if you don't ask, you won't know. Well, the ice managed to survive the rain and warm weekend, and the fish around Madison are picking up. This week on Fishy Business, Nate Wiggyhout and Pat Hansberg take a look at what's happening on the area's waters and get their trout poles ready for the beginning of catch and release season.
All right, I'm on the line now with Pat Hasberg over at the DNS Bait Shop here in Madison. Uh, Pat, before we start getting into things, how has the uh, how's the fishing been around Madison lately? We've had a little bit warmer temperatures, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But how's the fish been biting? Fishing has been good. Uh, the ice, like you mentioned, uh, could could use a little help, but um, you know the, this warm weather we had didn't really help the ice any. But it didn't hurt it that much either. The, the ice that we have out there is a good solid ice and um while it might look a little sketchy on top a, a lot of your shallow water areas around town have um a good five six even up to eight inches of ice in, in a lot of spots so um and, th- and they're catching fish in those areas so uh things things are still going great around town good to know good to know there I, I was a little bit worried about the ice with uh this weather that we've been having but before we get into some of the ice fishing around town pat i am excited and uh that is because trout season is uh kind of opening up catch and release opens up this saturday for trout wherever it is that you can find not frozen over streams around here and and just to sort of start with that do do many people you know come over to your shop go out trout fishing in sort of these more like winter months like say in january here they do yeah it's um you know there's a lot of folks that are you know don't ice fish and they're looking to cast a rod still and uh, with that early trout season it gives people an opportunity to do that um these cooler temps can make things a little uncomfortable but if you dress for it and you're, you're you know oftentimes you're out there hiking around kind of along the stream bank can keep you pretty warm so um there are quite a few people that enjoy that in particular on on nicer days when it gets into that between 30 and 40 degrees you know you get one of those days people just want to be outside doing something and now that sort of brings us into sort of a little bit of a newsy relevant thing that's going on there's a new study that just came out not that long ago uh looking at the populations of stream trout here in and sort of wisconsin sort of specifically in the midwest as a whole basically looking at brook trout and brown trout and uh end of the day brook trout populations are looking are going down and down while brown trout populations are going up and up so yeah is that something that you've sort of seen on sort of a personal level have you seen have you seen more brown trout out there than brook trout than say maybe maybe the uh, 20 years ago Absolutely. Yeah. I, I've been trout fishing for at least 30 years, and I could tell you about a few streams in the area that uh, used to have brook trout, and then I've completely switched over to brown trout, uh, or the brook trout are very rare in those areas now. So it's, yeah, it's a, it's, it has to do with, you know, climate change, and it's not so much that brook trout can't survive in, in warmer streams, but they don't thrive in in those waters. So they don't, they have trouble spawning and brown trout, you know, that generally live in, in the same streams tend to just kind of take over where the brook trout uh, leave that gap. So it's, it's troubling. And, um, it, but unfortunately it's a trend that's been happening for quite a while now. I've been noticing it, like I said, for at least the last 20 years or so. And what does that sort of mean practically for uh, fishermen like ourselves, uh, you know, looking at brown trout versus brook trout? What, what does that sort of mean for like the, the actual fishing? I know a lot of people, uh, myself included, prefer brook trout. Uh, what, what about yourself? Oh, I love a brook trout. I've got a huge brook trout tattoo on my arm. And so I'm, I'm a big fan of the brook trout. But uh, yeah, unfortunately, a lot of those fish you're going to find in very small water, kind of your headwaters of a lot of the streams around the area. Uh, that's where the water comes out of the ground at the coldest. And, you know, that's where these brook trout uh, thrive. Uh, but it's just, 
it's unfortunate to see, uh, you know, that the further down downstream waters where I used to find brook trout, you just don't see them anymore. So it's, yeah, I guess that's the world we live in, unfortunately. I also actually have a brook trout, not a tattoo, but right on my hat uh, as we are talking right now. You can't see me, Pat, because we're over the phone, but brook trout are sort of the way go. But enough about trout for the moment because it is is winter, it is ice fishing season. So let's sort of break down uh, the area waters. Let's start off with Lake Mendota. What's the uh, ice fishing been like over there? Well, the ice fishing has been good uh, where folks can get out. So uh, and I just want to stress to people that, you know, while I'm talking about the ice conditions being good around town, you still should use caution uh, when getting on and off the ice. Uh, some of the shoreline areas could be a little thin from this rain that we've had. And then you're also going to want to watch any current areas or areas where like a, a storm sewer outfall might enter into a lake. Uh, but that being said, up here on the north side, on, uh, up, up on Cherokee Marsh, they've got a solid seven or eight inches of ice up there, and they're getting good numbers of bluegills and pike uh, down on Lake Mendota proper. They're getting um, a lot of good walleyes, actually, in a lot of shallow areas around town. You know, University Shoreline, Warner Bay, Governor's Island, uh, the Spring Harbor, um, Marshall Park end of the lake has been good. So there's a lot of good fishing out there. I would just avoid the deeper water that... Um, that ice is still pretty sketchy. The lake is still capped over, but it's not safe for travel, if you ask me. And it doesn't look like we have a, a hard freeze coming up anytime soon in the forecast. Tomorrow night's supposed to get down to the teens, but otherwise, yeah, it's looking like it's not going to get too terribly cold over the next uh, week here at the very least. So, yeah, be sure to check that ice before you go out there. But moving on over to Monona, let's talk about Lake Monona. What's happening there? Well, basically the same thing over there. A lot of uh, good panfish action in some of the shallow bays. Uh, Monona Bay in particular has been, and the Triangles area down there off John Nolan has been uh, producing a lot of good uh, good numbers of bluegills. It's a little bit of a sorting game down there where you know you catch a lot of small fish before you catch a, a one that you might want to keep and take home. But um, they're getting some good pike in Monona Bay and also uh, a few largemouth here and there. But the real surprise down there has been some of the walleyes that I've been hearing coming out of there. It's uh, typically or historically hasn't really been much of a walleye bite in there. But um, I've been hearing about quite a few coming out of Monona Bay, um, Turbo Bay, Wickawack Bay, which is formerly Squaw Bay, um, and up on the north end of the lake near Oberk Park. Any, any of the shallow areas that are adjacent to some deeper water have been producing some really good walleye action uh, the last couple of weeks. And, of course, there's uh, great pike action on all the lakes around the chain. But um, the walleye has kind of been the uh, biggest news, I guess, recently. Well, Pat, that's about all the time that we have for today. Do you have just any final fishing advice, either for ice fishing or trout, trouting out in this weather right now? Well, if you're getting out on the ice, just please be safe. And if anybody wants any uh, current ice conditions, they can feel free to call the shop here. Uh, if you're getting out looking for trout, best of luck. Uh, it's it's a great time of year to be out, and trout live in beautiful places. So get out there and enjoy being outside. I'll be getting out this weekend. I'm not quite sure if I'll be trouting or if I'll be uh, ice fishing, but I'll, 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 I'm for sure getting out sometime this weekend. Well, Pat, thank you again for talking with me this week. You can hear an updated fishing report anytime you want by calling one easy-to-remember number. That's 608-BIG-FISH. Pat, thank you again, and good luck out there. Thanks, Nate. You too.
On January 4th, Netflix premiered a new documentary about the deceased American financial advisor and convicted fraudster Bernard Madoff. Now, if you watch it, about nine minutes in, an investigator points out a large black screw in Madoff's office. The sculpture is entitled Soft Screw by Claes Oldenburg, an American-Swedish sculpture known for making everyday objects larger than life. Oldenburg created 24 screws. Now, number 12 is on view at the Object Study Room in the Chazen Museum. The problem is, all of the soft screws are changing. In this archival edition of Radio Chipstone, contributor Jennifer Fields spoke with Maria Scafiati, who is the Dale Curator of Paintings, Sculpture, and Decorative Arts for the Chazen Museum. Part of the problem is that since they were made over a period of two years, they weren't all made from the same batch. The material itself was fairly new and the use by artists of polyurethane was experimental. Sculpture in and of itself suggests a permanence, but when you say monumental, this thing that's larger than life, there's this immediate attachment to it in our brains that says, this is going to last forever in this state. And certainly in museums, that's our job. I mean, the word curator uh, comes from the Latin curare, to take care of. That's my job, is to make sure that works of art last. But the reality is that, in fact, they're constantly changing. Works of art are made of synthetic material, of organic material. Conservation science has actually made enormous strides in the last 20 years, and we know a lot more about synthetic materials like polyurethane, which is a polymer, so the chemistry department here at UW-Madison has been extremely helpful, and they've done FTIR uh, spectrometry, they've, they've done various analytical tests on the black material that is dripping from the sculpture. So we're trying to understand chemically what is going on? This is a flathead screw in its design, and there's a base that would go into the groove. So at one point, this screw, this soft screw, stood on this base, correct? Yes, and the base is at an angle. So when the uh, cast polyurethane, the soft screw, the sculpture, is mounted, it assumes a natural curvature, and so thereby playing with the idea of metal screws being rigid, being vertical, and yet this is, in fact, a curve. But now we see it off the base, and it's sort of reclining. Is that part of the effort in conservation? Yes. So now we have uh, it mounted horizontally with a slight uh, downward inclination at the end, at the point end. Uh, because the reversion or the, um, the disintegration, the liquefaction, is happening only at the tip. And so when it is vertical or more upright, what happens is, like anything, like a, like a popsicle, uh, when something starts melting, gravity pulls it down. And what we uh, 
were advised by various conservators who we consulted is that in fact what looked like was happening that wherever the, um, the liquid form of the polyurethane was dripping down onto the existing solid form, it was changing the surface. So we want to prevent further damage along the, the shaft of the screw and simply encourage the dripping to just simply go off of the sculpture itself. Maria, is that dark, dusky sort of look part of the change? In my correspondence with other uh, museums who have one of these edition, in some cases, instead of the uh, essentially liquefaction, the, the goo oozing down, they are experiencing some kind of whitish, almost powdery substance that is uh, accumulating on the surface. So it's some kind of change on the surface that's happening. Part of me, and I hate to say it, is kind of delighted that it's happening because it's a living, moving thing and it's changing and it's an opportunity to learn more. Do we have an ideal of the rate? Do we know if this is something that's going to completely take the screw away from us? Do we know what its future looks like? And that's sort of enticing to me. What I can say is simply what I have observed in the last three years since it's been on view here in the object study room is that it is continuing to deteriorate. It's continuing to melt, so to speak. What we've decided is that essentially it is no longer the original work of art that Klaus Oldenburg intended. So has Oldenburg made a statement about these screws? Not that I know of, no. Very interestingly, the collector, Alvin Lane, became obviously very concerned when after he purchased the sculpture in 1992 at a Sotheby's auction, sometime later, he started noticing this sort of melting of the tip, becoming much more uh, viscous and shiny. And, and he actually tried to uh, uh, investigate whether it could be remolded, if he could basically get his money back. I mean, it became, obviously, as a, as a collector, as someone who was spending a lot of money to buy very good art, he was always very thorough in his uh, research and in maintaining good insurance appraisals. And uh, sadly, he concluded that um, nothing could be done. So the value of this work really was greatly diminished. But I think it's a good example of what happens to works of art, what happens to materials, what happens when artists are using uh, experimental materials in new ways. So there's a great deal that can be learned. And it's, it's an, a very useful object for teaching. And uh, it still, in my opinion, maintains a certain aesthetic you know, integrity despite its physical degradation. 
And that's a wrap for WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline reporter was Peter Voller. Your script editor was Russ Mackey. Your reporter tonight was Aaron Ashley. Special thanks to feature contributors Jonah Chester and Tom Kamenick, Pat Hansberg, and Jennifer Fields. Dylan Brogan engineered the show. Nate Wiggyhouse produced this newscast. And Ms. Sholly Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, Stacy Harbaugh. Hey, shout out for everyone who is listening to the local news live via the WORT app. You can also listen to this show anytime as a podcast. Just subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Up next is a perpetual notion machine. Thanks for listening. And good night.